Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. The idea of modern technology and society as a source of nobility, religious desire, and even old-style paganism doesn't come up all that much. And when it does, it happens in a tragic and even pejorative sense, moaning and wailing about how we've deteriorated into machine-like behavior and machine-like thinking can be seen everywhere from complaints about social media to discussions on medication. But some people seek to see beyond this and think there's enormous spiritual potential beyond the screens and even a God behind the pixels. One such person is Rabbi Tzvi Kilov, author of the book, Not a Jungle. Tzvi, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. So let me start with the first question that I ask everyone who comes on here. How did you get into this specifically? How did you write a book that speaks so positively and indeed enthusiastically uh, about the religious potential of technology? In my experience, uh, certainly from the more small c conservatively religious side of the picture, books on technology tend to be more defensive, more put it in its place, more let's try and limit the damage and the harm, it's a necessary evil and so forth. Uh, and perhaps on the more liberal side, it's more about cutting religion down to size. While you seem to have a much more ambitious and dare I say, confident project uh, about taking, taking the technology and running with it uh, to explore spirituality. So how, where did you come from? Well, I'm just your uh, typical uh, Jewish kid who grew up uh, going to private school here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, But when I was a teenager, I started getting really, really into uh, Chabad Hasidus. And for those of your listeners who may not know what that is, that is a form of uh, Jewish mysticism um, originating in the late 18th century in Eastern Europe that gives a very, very rich metaphysical framework, particularly pertaining to the interaction of rationality and the super-rational. So this is a, a, a deep system of philosophy, a deep system of thought that, and of metaphysics that is very concerned with the spiritual roots in godliness of all of creation and particularly the way that the mind uh, grasps godliness. And when I started getting into these studies and getting into this sort of of religious way of life, I began to study the works of the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson of Lubavitch, who passed away in uh, 1994. And my perspective on technology, or at least the, the, the roots of it, all come from the Rebbe's thought. You know, people think of a Hasidic Rebbe as a sort of a, a relic in time, uh, a character with a, a, a fancy hat and a, and a beard who dresses strangely and whose adherents, you know, would, would all go to hear his words in the, you know, through, trudging through the mud of Eastern Europe to go and hear his words. But the, uh, the Rebbe was a, an incredibly modern person. He studied in university. He studied to be an engineer. And um, he brought a totally revolutionary view on 
technology's application, science and technology in the pursuit of godliness. And the foundation of that entire view is that literally everything that exists comes from God and can be used as a method to, to reaching godliness and to participating in godliness. Everything that has been created is a means of accessing God. And given that axiom um, and a bit of a... Uh, and a bit of interest in the world around me and what's what's going on, you know, the passing scene, um, it's, it just became obvious that the two had to be wed together. I had to find a way to, uh, um, I had to find a means in contemporary history and the things that are going on all around us to discover godliness in it, to discover the way that things are changing for the good, because I firmly believe that God never puts us in a situation where he is inaccessible. He is accessible through everything that's going on around us. And that includes, um, so to speak, the accidents of history and historical circumstance. And uh, that's the roots of my positivity about science and technology and their, their usefulness in reaching God. Fascinating. Um, but if I may, in your book, uh, a number of your essays, you t actually talk about the other direction. You talk about how um, technology and science becomes kind of like an iron dome, barring one's view to the transcendental. Uh, one particular essay that I really enjoyed uh, was on what you called spaceship paganism, where you talked about uh, the, uh, the probe, the opportunity. Where when it finally die, when it finally was going to die out, you can't say die because it's not something with consciousness. Uh, scientists, the NASA scientists played played certain music to it to make it fall asleep and uh, to let it, you know, die peacefully, quote unquote. Uh, and you spoke there about how, ironically enough, in a in an age where we think that we've entirely let go of that uh, of concepts of paganism and theism we're just basically returning to it but as an outgrowth and perhaps as an outgrowth of humanity um and perhaps returning to the old pagan conceptions uh does that not perhaps contradict uh, what you're saying or are you just saying this is the this is the danger route uh this is the bad detour and you should be going in a different direction well of course the trick is and the reason why um uh you can't summarize the Hasidic philosophy in uh, two minutes, and uh, there's thousands and thousands of uh, no one's pages and rivers of ink, right? But the, the, the reason why that is is because that, that's the hard part, right? The hard part is figuring out um, whether something is godly through total embrace or through total rejection or through some uh, uh, way in the middle. And, of course, the the... Uh, figuring out the the ratios of these things and the correct balance is the entire that's the entire trick that's the that's the wisdom that's why you require a rebbe that's why you require teaching and guidance and uh, um, all of those things but to to speak more directly to um, to the point of the uh, the modern paganism the spacefaring paganism I think that that the positive aspect even though you're right that that in general i see this as a negative move and i the idolatry aspect is negative i think that the positive aspect of these new paganisms these these uh, so to speak worshiping and 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 
admiring the work of our own hand. The positive aspect is that the pendulum just a few years ago, I remember um, the dis- sort of discussions that were going on the around on the internet about uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, those discussions were all between atheism and religion, hard atheism, the fundamental rejection of the spirit, the belief in, uh, in pure materialism, pure naturalism. Um, and I think that, the, that, that this move, this swing that we see towards this sort of um, animism, this treating the Mars rover as if it's a being to whom you have to uh, you know, play it music as it drifts off to its eternal rest, um, that development, I think, is incredibly positive. Um, idolatry is, is uh, it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing in Judaism, and we reject it. But as anyone who studies the Talmud knows, the historically in Judaism, idolatry died out at the same time as prophecy, and the two things were not were were interconnected. That that's no mistake. Um, idolatry denotes a certain spiritual sensitivity. You have a person who is willing to look at what is essentially a hunk of metal with some extremely complex uh, uh, silicon in its brain that functions as a very, very fast abacus. And the people are willing to see in that uh, meaning, you know, um, spiritual abstraction. They're, they're, they see in it a, a soul. There's really no other way for it. and No other word for it, pardon me. And... Uh, in that sense, it's an incredibly positive development. I think that that yearning of the of of that we have nowadays for, um, for meaning and for soul in the things around us will eventually lead back to God. I think it's just a question of uh, how quickly and how many wrong roads we're going to go down first before we get back there. Hmm. Um, so, if we're going to talk about. Uh these things uh, leading in the direction of uh, spiritual growth. Um, I wanted to ask you about another essay where you talked a little bit more positively about technology guiding people. And this is your essay, uh, God is in the Pixels. Uh, There you effectively argue that for a very long time, uh, the Western world has been afflicted with the the philosophically nominalist approach that says that there is no essence to anything. It's just our impressions of them or others' impressions of them or, if you wish, the culture in which we live. So we accept the impressions of previous generations and see the world through that. But there's nothing in and of itself. And you effectively try and argue in a bit of a Chestertonian way um, that, that because technology basically takes nominalism to its extreme. What I am seeing now on the screen, there's nothing there that could even pretend to be essential. It's all ones and zeros. It's all little packets of information or little digital atoms forming and reforming. And you argue that that would actually lead to people rediscovering an essentialism. I'm not quite sure if I followed your argument there. I was wondering if you could explain Well, sure. Um, The general foundation of this entire idea actually goes back to uh, Maimonides and his Guide for the Perplexed in the uh, Middle Ages. Um, I, of course, read it through a Hasidic lens, which is uh, minorly controversial and uh, neither here nor there. But what Maimonides does say there, undisputably, 
is that nothing can be affirmed of God. Maimonides follow, um, in, uh, introduces in a very uh, profound way to Judaism the idea of negative theology, the idea that when we talk about God, we're really only ever talking about what he's not. When we say that God is wise, what we really mean is that he's not ignorant because there's no, or he's not unwise, let's say, because there's no definition of wise that can actually pertain to God. God shares nothing in common with any of the uh, worldly definitions. And Maimonides, the Rambam, actually takes this to the uh, furthest logical extreme, and he says that you can't even really say that God exists, which is quite a uh, profound statement uh, coming out of the uh, Middle Ages, very old philosophy. The Rambam says that to say that God exists implies that he exists the same way anything else exists, which in Judaism is not true. God has an existence that is totally unrelatable to the existence of anything else. Now, if you consider this statement, what you really hear, what I really hear in this statement, is that there, there is a view under which the denial of God can actually be the deeper affirmation of God. And in my opinion, and the matter is, uh, the matter is complex, but in my opinion, this is the overlying path to spiritual redemption for modernity. If you understand the, the shift in modern thinking, the philosophical shift, the profound shift away from essentialism, the shift to say that things don't really exist, things are only as we perceive them, um, if you look for the godliness in that, if you look for how does that reflect the, the modern soul's desire for God, I think it sends you straight back to this idea from Maimonides, that the modern denial of existences is not a denial of them outright, per se. It is a denial of those existences as, having, as existing within a certain stricture or within a certain hierarchy. And I think you can, you can see that theme repeated again and again, right? For example, um, you have uh, modern politics, the rise of the liberal democracy. The rise of the liberal democracy does not say authority does not exist. It says that authority does not exist in the narrow and defined way that authority was perceived to exist that was perceived to exist before. Authority can 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 come from surprising places. It can come from surprising directions. In that negation of the old authority, they were able to discover an authority that in my opinion is much more uh, profound and speaks to a much deeper level of the human soul, namely an authority which, recognize, which recognizes the autonomy of the individual and individual freedom as its deepest basis. Uh, similarly, I think you can say the exact same thing about the, um, the um, essentialism and nominalism as I spoke about in that essay, that the the fracturing of modern reality for which the screen the, the the computer monitor is the metaphor right because the monitor has no actual objects on it it just has thousands and thousands of tiny pixels which give the impression of objects but the fact that 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 essential nature has been fractured that 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 earlier image has been destroyed that we are essentially saying we can recreate what you thought was real before without actually needing anything to really be there 
that too is not a turn away from the essential per se. It is knocking down the small-minded concepts of the essence that existed previously to allow for greater ones. And on the mystical view, uh, on, the, on the Hasidic view, the reason why this has to take place or why this is important in man's service of God is because the mind, the rational mind, which so dominated medieval philosophy, which so um, dominated with its Aristotelian sense of essentialism, the, the, the strict hierarchy and definitions of things, um, that view is good. Hasidus affirms that view. Uh, Jewish mysticism affirms that view, but it says that it's not the whole picture. It's not the entire view of reality. Those essences and those defined, those definitions are all nested within a higher reality that the human mind um, cannot grasp. And on the mystic view, just because we are knocking down our previous understandings, just because we're knocking down essences, doesn't mean we are losing everything. We can actually be opening ourselves up to a higher reality uh, beyond those assumptions. So that was basically the theme of that essay. Wow. So speaking of uh, questioning conventional wisdom and possibly breaking through to something more exalted, uh, another theme I've noticed at the other end, from science worship to, I guess, science disputation. Uh, one theme I noticed in your book is that you are very fascinated and indeed quite, um, I guess I would say sympathetic, to people uh, on the, I guess I'd call them, on the edges of the scientific discussion. Uh, so, for instance, you have an article defending people who believe the Earth is flat. Um, and in one essay, you discuss how the people who seek social justice uh, have, a, have kind of a, a, a messianic utopian vision, but not, in the, not necessarily in the pejorative sense. And perhaps, of course, the most, power, uh, the most interesting one is the talk about how transgender thinking uh, points to a innate and perhaps increased human desire to argue for being something beyond the biological. Could you perhaps elaborate uh, on this general theme? Uh, sure. So that's actually the essay uh, in this book that people want to talk to me about the most. That's definitely <laughs> the... Uh, so, so, so I was trying to like bring it into a general theme saying <laughs> it's not the only place where you discuss this sort of thing. Sure, sure. Um, so, again, I would say it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's very similar to the previous idea. I think the things are really connected. Um, the, you know, I grew up, I grew up before I started studying Jewish mysticism and uh, really becoming religious in the uh, traditional terminology, um, I grew up as a very, very scientifically minded uh, young lad. I used to read things from children's encyclopedias. I used to watch all the educational TV shows. Um, that was sort of the framework that I came from. And a lot of my adult intellectual life has been trying to deal with that framework. 
And again, as I was saying previously, I think that the, this, the, the scientific impulse, if you will, the human desire for things to make sense in that quantifiable and testable way is, a, is like all human desires, at the root, it is a spiritual desire for God. Um, and once you can understand that there are different ways to desire God, there are different ways to contextualize those human impulses. Um, you know, I, for example, for example, I'm sure you're familiar with the, um, with the prayer that we say uh, repeatedly on in the High Holy Days, where we say Avinu Malkenu, right? Of course, the, the famous Jewish prayer where we call God our Father, our King. Um, you know, just those two words, our father, our king, have been the subject of, of a, a, uh, a number of, of books about Jewish prayer and the Jewish relationship with God. And the reason is obvious, because our father, our king, paints an incredibly, uh, it, it's a, there's a certain inherent tension to those words. My father implies someone close, someone relatable, someone who's going to shelter me and love me and give me guidance. My king implies responsibility, someone that's far above me, who will hold me to account, who expects things from me, um, who has the power to do with me what they will, and I'm not necessarily certain that um, that's always going to turn out the way that I would like. You know, there's, there's, there's a certain inherent tension there. So similarly, I feel that in modern times, our desire for God can express itself in a desire for closeness, a relationship of closeness where we, we make the highest principle something that we can understand. This is God as our Father. And there's also a different principle, very much like God is our King, which says God should be something far away from me. I don't, I don't need to understand God. God should be something beyond my understanding and uh, beyond my mind. Um, and so all of these people on the, so to speak, on the edges, on the societal edges, like the, like um, uh, transgendered people, or at least how they were more a few years ago. I think they're certainly moving now more, more into the uh, mainstream, as well as um, uh, people on the, uh, you know, the conspiracy theorists on the edges, like the the flat earthers. These people the way that they can be embraced without necessarily embracing everything that they believe is to recognize that their desire for God, both of these desires, both of these impulses are impulses to break free of imposed constraints. Both of these impulses are impulses that say there's something true beyond the conventional wisdom. Now, obviously, whether that, whether that, what the details are of that and whether to accept or reject it is a whole other debate. But to recognize that those impulses can be viewed as an impulse for God allows for a cohesion and a unity and a love of your fellow man that I feel is, is um, desperately needed nowadays. When you meet someone who's a flat earth conspiracy theorist, you don't have to write off the their, the, the motivation for believing that conspiracy as something small and childish, because then they're just children, then they're just uh, people stamping, uh, uh, stamping their feet and saying, I don't like what I'm being told, they're stupid, they're ignorant, and you write them off. 
But I think if you can say, okay, you may have reached conclusions that I don't believe, but your desire, the thing that made you pursue those conclusions, is actually an aspect of the human experience that I can, number one, relate to, and number two, even learn from, that is an incredibly unifying concept. And the exact same thing is true with transgenderism. People leap to judge. Um so quickly one way or the other that they don't even take a moment to realize that the fundamental argument there is a spiritual argument that these people are actually rejecting a purely um uh, i think i would have to add whether they admit it or not i'm not saying they necessarily all would say they agree with me but there is a way to view them that they that they are rejecting a purely biological conception of the body so you can find within all of these things a spiritual core, a desire for transcendence that I think um, it certainly lets me look at people in a more positive light, in a more welcoming light. So having said that, uh, I'd like to take uh, this argument one step further a bit, because what you are saying, uh, one of the, if we were talking about essentialism versus nominalism, which was really the major debates in like the, I guess the 17th, the 18th century uh, philosophy. Mm -hmm. One of the big, big, big movements that still permeates every single corner uh, of culture pretty much around the world is existentialism, mm -hmm. uh, which I honestly kind of feel uh, aligns with what you were saying earlier, but sort of like stops short. Like says, okay, there's there's a me beyond, or there might be a me beyond, or I want there to be a me beyond, but I don't want it to go too far. It's just biological me, and then I'm going to die, and that's it. There's no, in other words, there's still some sort of an iron dome. There's still some sort of a wall serving as a barrier for further search. And the and what I would like to ask you is. Uh, how does one even think about going beyond that? given how even existentialist thinkers and even people who, even all of us who think often in existentialist terms, uh, nevertheless feel ourselves constrained by the previous discussion of the essentialism, the nominalism, and so forth. Oh, wow. That's a very deep question. Um, I'm not expecting you to answer the whole thing, but like, you know, maybe highlights or directions. <laughs> I think that the I think that the barrier that holds us back most often I can only really speak here from personal experience the barrier that holds us back most often is really a it's a barrier of self-conception is really what it is I think the assumption, the fundamental assumption that if I am going to discover God, God is going to be something beyond me, something outside of me, is, I think that's the fundamental um stumbling block for people who would want to pursue sort of a synthesizing mystical tradition like Hasidus, um, which seeks to 
as all mysticisms do, um, you know, unify to some extent all dualities, to say that everything is one. The fundamental barrier to saying that everything is one, and of course all the mysticisms say this differently, it's far more, it can't be summarized in that one word or you immediately leap into uh, various errors, so that, uh, that sentence is insufficient. But just as, a, as, the, as the broadest possible conception, to say that everything is one, the immediate barrier that you meet is the the per, the self-perception of being an independent existence right it's essential it's it's ego but in the deeper sense of the word not in the popular sense of the not in the popular um you know uh, psychoanalytic sense of the um term in which a person who's egotistical is very self-centered, I'm talking about the deepest existential self-centering. The fact that everything that I encounter is still something that I encounter. And how do I get beyond that? Because I am I, and you are you, and at the end of the day, it doesn't seem that these two things can possibly be one. And that is the, that's the root and then analyzing that relationship gives you essentialism. And then analyzing your analysis gives you nominalism, etc., etc. The foundation of all philosophy, Socrates said, I believe, is wonder. It's the astonishment at, at the things that exist around us, right? Because we fundamentally sense at the deepest level that we are separate from the things around us, that they are objects to be studied. They are things that are the objects of our attention. The radical idea at the heart of mysticism is that beyond that ego, within that, that, that selfishness, who is the self that is talking? The self that is talking is actually something that is beyond me. I think that's the fundamental barrier, to speak in very abstract terms. You know, the fundamental issue is that we don't realize, as the uh, Quran says, which I don't think you were expecting a Quran quote in uh, in this interview, but as the Quran as the Quran says, um, God is closer to us than the vein in our own neck. If I'm not mistaken, that's the quote from the Quran. God is not something that has to be pursued as an object of our mind. God is actually closer to us as the one that is thinking, and really, I think, a turn inward to our own life experiences, especially our earliest experiences, before we built all these frameworks and established this thick barrier between self and other, and that ego is really solidified as the foundation of a whole life's intellectual work. Before all of that, there was a place and there was a time when we were open to that reality, when we were open to the idea that the self is possibly a function of something else. It's a function of, of, of some greater and bigger unity. I think for now, that's all I can uh, really offer on that topic. Entirely fair enough. This is the kind of thing that could probably fill libraries and probably does. Um, yeah. But if we're talking about um, going back to a previous point uh, in which we were open to it, um, why not uh, go all the way back to the beginning, the beginning of our existence? And an essay you discuss where uh, a fellow, I don't remember if, he was a, if he's a philosopher, a fellow named David Benatal, 
who wrote an essay where it says, it's best not to be born. And everybody laughed at it and everybody scoffed at it. But as is quite typical in your book, and I really appreciate it because you, whether I agree on any particular issue, you really make me think about the, the, the positive and the potential and pretty much everything, which is, of course, I guess, along the lines of Hasidic thought. You argued that there is a point to the antinatal position and how they get it wrong is not how we think they get it wrong. Uh, if you could perhaps elaborate on that for our audience. Of course. Well, the Talmud itself, and for those in the audience who are not familiar, the Talmud is the central work of Judaism. Not just mystical Judaism, like I subscribe to, but all Judaisms. And the Talmud is, a, is very, very hard to describe for someone that hasn't learned it. It's a collection of... I actually once read a description of the Talmud that was very beautiful, which says that the Talmud is not a book. The Talmud is a net that is drawn through the entire reality. And everything that's in the world, in one way or another, gets caught in its net, which is a very beautiful, uh, poetic description of what the Talmud is. The Talmud is a collection of the teachings and discussions of the Jewish sages from around uh, 2,000 years ago. But it has all sorts of interesting things. It has all sorts of interesting stories, anecdotes, miracle stories, things that are clearly allegorical, all sorts of interesting things in there. And one of the famous passages in the Talmud is a debate over whether it is better that man should have been created or not. And the astonishing conclusion to the debate is that Beit Shammai, Shammai is correct, and Shammai says that it's better man never should have been created. That's the astonishing conclusion of the Talmud. So we find in a Jewish work from 2,000 years ago a very um, a prescient uh, uh, prediction of something that would be said nowadays and, and not even and, uh, uh, somewhat seriously, that it would be better for man never to have been born, that I'm not going to have children because I don't want to bring them into this crazy world. Which, which kind of makes you laugh because you imagine if this is the crazy world you won't bring them into, imagine a hundred years ago, but that's beside the point. The, um, so you have this incredible teaching from the Talmud. Now, obviously, Judaism is an extremely natalist uh, religion. We believe in having children. It's one of God's commands, in fact, upon every uh, uh, Jew to have children. Every Jewish man, especially, should have a son and a daughter. For those who don't know, this is a tenet of, uh, of traditional Jewish law. But the, so, so the question becomes, how can you reconcile these two things? How can they conclude that it's better for man never have, to have been born and that Judaism is actually an incredibly natalist religion? And I think here you see it again. You see the, this, this continuing theme that we find that the assumption is always that the traditional religions are saying what old philosophy said, that the traditional religions are saying something before the modern revolution, before the Enlightenment. But the truth is that the rabbis of the Talmud were not saying something um, old at all. They weren't. The, it turns out that Judaism is not natalist in the, um, in the sense that your grandfather from the 1950s was a natalist. The two couldn't be further away from one another. In what sense? Because the Talmud is not discussing whether you should have children. It's discussing whether it's better that man should have been born. In other words, is it to man's benefit 
that he should have been born or not? Is that good for a human being to be born? And the Talmud's conclusion is that, in fact, on man's own terms, as an, as an isolated being in himself, it's actually not necessarily to man's benefit that he should have been born. And, um, you know, you can tie this into, if you want, the Talmud there does not, but you could tie this into, um, you know, the Jewish conception of the before life, which not necess- which I, I recently learned not all religions believe in, not all Abrahamic religions believe in, which is interesting, because Judaism has a conception of the soul before it comes into the body, that the soul uh, exists above and is, is worshipping God on a spiritual plane before it is brought down to this uh, reality to be... Um, incarnated, and that is uh, very similar to where the soul returns to after uh, after death. Um, and so you could tie that into this piece of Talmud and say that the soul was quite happy serving God above before it had to have all the things in this physical world to deal with, dealing with the physical body and having to earn a living and having to uh, eat and all of the physical limitations that the body imposes. The soul was quite happy. The Talmud, the sages of the Talmud 2,000 years ago in Babylon were quite open to the idea, or in Israel, were quite open to the idea that the soul would have preferred not to have been born. However, why then is Judaism so natalist? Because we, the reason we have children is because those children have the opportunity to live for a higher purpose and to live for God and not to just live for themselves. So even though it would be better, it would be easier on our own terms not to exist, and the anti-natalists on, in that regard are completely correct because almost all of them are atheists and they have no transcendent grounding for this life. The sages of the Talmud said, because there is a transcendent grounding, because what you do in time uh, is in the service of eternity, therefore we are commanded to have children. We are commanded to bring more lives into this world. And uh, because of the great opportunity that this world presents in the service of God. See, I think that uh, is uh, more than enough to take in, probably for a lifetime. This has been (laughs) very fascinating. Uh, before I sign off, I'd like to ask, are you planning any further writing uh, on this subject? Um, I don't know how much I should share and how much I shouldn't share. There are certainly um, upcoming projects. I, I do post occasional uh, essays of the style that are in my book um, on my website, which is notajungle.com. And there are one or two other long-form work uh, 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 works that are... Uh, in process, in the process of making. I've been really, really interested recently in, um, in the, the very concept of idolatry, which we touched on in our discussion of uh, spacefaring paganism. And um, if I get everything that I want, um, that will be the topic of my uh, next work, God willing. Sounds fascinating, and I really look forward to reading the finished product. Tzvi, thank you very much for coming on. It's been great. It was a pleasure, Avi. Thanks for having me.